I'm Emily. And I'm Kay. And this is Second Lead Syndrome. A podcast homage to our K-pop culture side pieces. For both of us, K-pop is something extra beyond the main focus of what we normally do, and this podcast will address our mutual affection for K-pop and how we can learn and grow alongside it. Part of that for us, naming it second lead syndrome, definitely has to do with those sorts of things not being guilty pleasures, but things that we fully embrace and, as Kay was saying, really enrich um, our lives sort of beyond uh, beyond what we think is our main goal or our main career or our main vocation or preoccupation um, and giving that its own shine, making it center stage. And for both of us, we're uh, practicing anthropology doctoral students and that's our supposed main occupation. Uh, But in many ways, K-pop and Korean pop culture more broadly uh, has become a central fixture and is deeply connected to our vocation in a lot of different ways. So we're going to take the opportunity in this very first episode to talk a little bit about why that is. Where is the connection? Because something like anthropology in an academic space and Korean pop music seem sort of not to cross over all that much, but there are some fibers of connection, and that's what we're here to sort of talk about today as the genesis for this lovely podcast. Um, And the way that we actually first connected was through K-pop. It was not through anthropology. Um, And the reason this happened is I am a huge Vix fan, (laughs) and... I had compiled about 10 pages of notes about their work um, up through 2014. I had just been watching a lot of their material, music videos, TV appearances, listening to their music, looking at the lyrics and translation, um, and compiling all of the sorts of patterns and themes that I had seen emerging throughout their work. And as someone who looks at things often in a very analytic way as an academic, I started to see all of these interesting things emerging and I wanted to talk to somebody about it. Uh, But there weren't that many people around me who, first of all, even knew anything about K-pop, second of all, knew who Vix (laughs) was, um, and third of all, even wanted to pay attention that deeply to something like that. Uh, And I was scouring the internet as one does when one is interested in <laughs> K-pop. As <one> <laughs> yes, as one does. And I was really looking for work that looked at K-pop, generally speaking, um, in the same ways that I was kind of thinking about it. And not just in a kind of journal article format, because journal articles take forever to get published. So, you know, the hottest band three years ago is no longer hot, but the article is written about it when they're hot, and then their sort of shelf life expires, and you end up uh, not seeing any more about them. So, 
you know, the internet has a much faster output, but I was struggling to find something that was really engaging with it that deeply, but also in a more timiest fashion and in a less erudite, um, but still sort of resolutely, I think, intellectual and analytic approach. And I stumbled across <laughs> Kay's blog, uh, Radio Palava. Is it okay I, if I yes. <laughs> is it okay if I, I talk about <laughs> Radio Palava? And it caught my eye first of all because uh, palava is like a West African stew, and I studied abroad in Ghana, and it was a food that I was familiar with. And yet, the content was predominantly about K-pop. Despite my best <laughs> when I started the blog. And that particular mix to me of K-pop fandom, anthropological influence, because I had also noticed that you were using different anthropologists' work and incorporating that into how you were looking at K-pop and the sort of inflection of the West African knowledge as well, to me was a, a combination that really spoke to my own sensibilities. And I just thought, this person is like my intellectual soulmate. <laughs> so I, I just dropped you an email, I think, asking yeah, if we yeah. could talk. And I just kind of Wanted, I was like, I need to get these 10 pages of notes out of my system, and I need someone who's going to understand what I'm going for to force me to actually write something about this. And I think we scheduled a Skype date after much back and forth or a long period of time where we, <laughs> we were trying to get a hold of each other. And finally it happened, and I think it was really just like a Vulcan mind meld, I think, when I tell people. It was, it was three hours. <laughs> like three hours. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think just from there, there was a really special connection um, that intertwined all of, those, all of those interests. And, yeah, eventually our connection um, enabled me to shepherd a piece about Vix into the world. <laughs> and it was a piece that I had always wanted to write. And I think given my yeah, busy workload, I never would have done it if it weren't for us meeting and having something like uh, like the writer's workshop. We, we did a K-pop writer's workshop together, which you recruited me into. And that was sort of the, the impetus for finishing the piece. Um, so yeah, that was how we initially connected. But Okay, maybe you can talk a little bit more about how it progressed from there. <laughs> sure. Well, I had actually been blogging about K-pop since 2012 and was really excited to meet someone who was interested in taking K-pop seriously. I think that's it's it can be hard to find people, especially in person, but also on the internet, who are really interested in engaging K-pop from an intellectual perspective. And so when Emily reached out to me and told me that she was a PhD student and that she wanted to think about K-pop in this way, I was really excited. <laughs> and, you know, it developed into this sort of a friendship and also a mentorship. And um, Emily encouraged me then. Um, when, when the time came, when I was ready, she encouraged me to apply to graduate school and um, specifically anthropology programs. And lo and behold, we've ended up at the same university. So I'm now in my first year here and Emily's in her fourth year. And um, it's been really great to you know, talk about K-pop and K-drama and also anthropology and the, the work that we do beyond our internet presence. 
Precisely. And I think because we kept having these sorts of conversations, uh, we started to think about what we wanted to do. Um, I think with the sort of podcast boom and the fact that we already were having these kinds of conversations, um, uh, in terms of if you were going to use a journalistic analog for it, right, that there is no K-pop journalistic analog to, say, something like Harper's or The New Yorker. And I think that that's kind of the level that we're sort of going for here is something that, uh, yeah, doesn't – that is unstinting and it's kind of critical eye uh, that doesn't try to – think about sort of lowest common denominator or trying to simplify whatever erudite impulses we have, um, but also not making it something that exists behind a paywall of an academic journal or, uh, you know, is so steeped in a kind of theoretical lexicon that one can't kind of get into it or access it. And I think that that's also intertwined in in what we're trying to do as well is that we want to use theoretical concepts, we want to think in complex ways, but we're also willing to sort of unpack all of that and and make it something that is like listener friendly Mm -hmm. also. And not only that, we're willing to unpack it, but we think that it's very important that we unpack it and that we can, that that part of engagement with K-pop is being willing to think alongside it and to engage it on its own terms and take seriously the cultural milieu that it is that it is being produced and consumed in. Um, and for me, that's always been um, an important part of engaging with popular culture. Um, the idea that there's big stuff happening within and outside of whatever it is that we're watching or listening to or reading. Um, and we have a responsibility to, to, to think about all of that along with the stuff itself, and that thinking is a responsibility with whatever we're consuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of like um, I was talking with a student, and they were telling me it was an it was a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed undergraduate, <laughs> and I think he had aspirations of going to medical school or doing something around global health. And full disclosure, I do work on global health issues to a certain extent. And uh, I think one of his frustrations, which I think just many young people encounter when they are, you know, in a college space, for example, that, uh, you know, there's critique and then there's action. They create a sort of dichotomy between the two things. And I think the problem a lot of people have when they're, especially an undergraduate, is seeing all of this critique. Everybody's giving you tools on like, how do you critique stuff? How do you critique stuff? And then saying, but what does that mean for action? What does that mean for practical application? How can I take these intellectual critiques and then do something with it? And that was his frustration, was the disjunct in feeling hopeless because the critique is really deep and the practical implementation of critique is supposedly way more difficult. And my response to him was, yes, but critique is action, that the life of the mind is still living. And that isn't to discount or make excuses for inaction in any sort of way, but that 
it's it's a continuum. It isn't a dichotomous sort of relationship. And I think that that's true of pop culture as well. Um, you know, that to begin to critique pop culture is to also begin to critique ways of living and, and living better through the ways that you're connecting with pop culture. Um, so that's definitely one of the ways that I see this kind of engagement actually still doing something, uh, even if it doesn't seem as direct. Um, but maybe we should turn to talking a little bit more about how we came to love K-pop and our own sorts of, we've talked about the team origin story, but I think the individual origin stories are also worth kind of getting into, you know, um, the mutual secret love affair and the sort of love affair with K-pop <laughs> are yes. two different aspects. So you want to go ahead and talk about that a little bit, Kay? Sure. <laughs> I think like many people who become interested in K-pop, I entered through J-dramas, which were recommended to me by some friends who have long been consumers of Bollywood and J-drama, K-drama, C-drama, all of that. Um, and I think, I'm trying to think of like what my first K-drama was. I think the first one that I really, really loved was City Hunter, which um, mm, yes, is a yes. for many, <laughs> many people. And um, after that, I think what got me into like K-pop itself was Dream High. And I really, really liked Genie, and I ended up looking it up and like watching the video and being like, this is quite something. And I think that's how many people end up like they just start this like YouTube spiral. And that's definitely my story as well. That I was just like, what is going on here? I think I'd better watch this next video, <laughs> see if I can figure it out. So I went from that to blogging um, and reading a lot more and doing a lot of sort of independent research um, to try and figure out what exactly is going on here. So. Yeah, so I actually don't know the story of what started you blogging about it. Mm. Yeah, so that's a great question that actually leads back to like the title of the blog and like, <laughs> why originally it seemed like it should be about West Africa. So after I graduated, I was from college, um, I majored in African studies in college and um, was interested in hip-hop music in uh, Nigeria and spent a lot of time listening to and thinking about the music of Fela Kuti, um, who's an activist musician from Nigeria. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about the ways that music and real life can intersect and influence each other. Um, and so I set up a blog to kind of challenge myself after college to continue thinking and taking music seriously. Um, and I didn't originally plan on, you know, having anybody read it or really keeping up with it in like a serious way. Mm -hmm. um, but the there was the summer of 2012, just after I had gotten into K-pop, when I was like, this really needs to be talked about more, and I'm just going to start talking about it and see what happens. Um, so that's how it originally it went from being a like a West Africa music blog to being a K-pop music blog. It just sort of organically happened that way. Right. So the fulcrum point was just sort of like when you discovered K-pop, yeah, it sort of like, tilted into... Yeah, it was like all this <laughs> stuff needs to be unpacked, and I guess since... I 
didn't know anybody else who was doing it the way that I wanted to do it, I was like, I'll just do it. <laughs> yeah. And I, again, I think that's what drew me to you was I was, you know, out in the desert. I was like, where is <laughs> where is the K-pop Harpers? Where is the K-pop Harpers? <laughs> and lo and behold, there there was your vlog, you know. Corner of the <laughs> <gathering> dust. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I read that stuff and I just thought, man, this is really incisive. It's you know, exactly the kinds of connections I was looking for. But it's also that, you know, your writing has this really kind of, I think, crisp, accessible quality. And I think that's largely connected, too, to your training as an educator. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that, too. Sure. Yeah. So in addition to studying African studies in college, I also got a teaching license. And I believe strongly that Learning is such an important part of life, and our institutions can make that easier or hard for us, um, as many folks know, and I personally would like institutions to make it easy for us um, <laughs> and recognize that, that learning is such a critical part of life, and you can do it anywhere and with anything. Um, so that was the other piece for me, not only like using my blog to like keep up with my own thinking, but also to help others do their own thinking and hopefully learn together. Um, and that continues to be a piece of my research that's very important. Um, and I hope that it will be a part of this podcast as well. So like as we're thinking through things that, that are anyone who's listening is also, you know, picking up these tools and thinking, oh, how can I apply this to my own life or things that are important to me? I guess we should also rewind and maybe give people a little primer on what the hell anthropology is yeah. because <laughs> I think even though there are a lot of, um, you know, knowledgeable folks out there listening, hopefully listening to this, uh, I think for many people, when you get the question, oh, what are you studying? If you say you're in graduate school and you say, oh, I'm studying anthropology and people's immediate reaction is either, oh, is it like Bones? You know, the the TV show, which is, you know, forensic anthropology. And indeed, that is one branch of anthropology. Um, or you get the question like, oh, cool. Is it like Indiana Jones? Do you dig up stuff? Um, punch Nazis. And yeah, do you punch Nazis? Yes. Um, that That's part of the job. Uh, perhaps, the world punch Nazis. <laughs> perhaps more figuratively than, than literally. But uh, yeah, indeed, I think for a lot of people, anthropology is still a bit of a mystery unless you've taken classes in it. Um, and or unless you know an anthropologist. And even then, I think, you know, people who know us don't always know what we do. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, like, I guess we could trade off on this, but what's your sort of elevator speech for when you get the, oh, is it because you dig up stuff? (laughs) Well, here's the funny thing is like, like any anthropologist, I can never come up with like a precise definition that I feel 100% confident that like, yes, this is exactly what it is. Mm -hmm, Somebody mm -hmm. once said, I don't think anthropologists are ever too sure of anything. We've always got qualifiers and um, disclaimers and things. So, like, so anthropology, like, loosely put, is the study of people and cultures, how people act, why they act the way they do. Um, yeah, it, that's sort of the, the textbook definition. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think part of the beauty of anthropology is that it's a moving target. Mm -hmm. I kind of think of the lyric from um, the Sound of Music song, um, 
I think it's called Maria, where they have a line and it says, how do you catch a cloud and pin it down? Mm. And it's, it's, it's kind of a metaphor for that, that sort of amorphous thing that's spirited that you can never peg a singular thing on. And that's part of what I love about it is that it has a kind of free spiritedness, a kind of open-endedness as a way of studying, as a way of seeing the world and engaging with the world that has a sort of moving target quality to it. And that isn't to say that we don't produce concrete knowledge through anthropological exploration, uh, but what it does mean is that we kind of look at things and say it's contingent. Right. It's it's the contingency. And I think that that's something that is very, I guess, human uh, is that humans are sort of contingent beings. Right. And there's even branches of anthropology that don't just look at humans. <laughs> they look at humans and other creatures and other things and how they all interact together. Um, and I think the sort of thumbnail definition that I usually give of anthropology is one that um, I think someone on the blog, there's an anthropology blog, Savage Minds, and on that blog, they had, a, I think, a roundtable discussion of how people would define anthropology. And I think the best one uh, that I saw was just the diversity of humankind. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, anthropologists choose to pursue that diversity in a variety of different ways. So when I give the elevator speech, I explain that, at least in the tradition of American anthropology, the different ways that people would explore human diversity were, thanks to the anthropologist Franz Boas, sort of a four-pronged approach, one being kind of the biological aspects of human existence. So that's where you get the sorts of ideas about looking at skulls or human morphology or evolution of, of humankind, so early hominids all the way through to present day. Um, and then you have looking at human cultures in the past, which is archaeology, or that's, again, a rough sketch of what archaeology used to be. I think it's a very dynamic field as well that's changing. And then you get linguistic anthropology, which is something that I think we both spend time thinking about as well, which is the diversity of human language and human communication and expression. Uh, And then finally, sort of your cultural anthropology. And obviously, the old school stereotype of that is, you know, the colonial guy going to some remote island and like making sense of what the hell the villagers do. But I always say, you know, there's there's a little bit of truth to that. But there's also now that's pretty much a free for all for who's doing what and who's the person doing the work. And sometimes it's with our own communities or it's in places that aren't, you know, remote islands. And of course, there are anthropologists who go to those sorts of places still. But yeah, anthropologists are pretty much everywhere. And you can do anthropology everywhere as long as there's something kind of social and interesting going on there. Um, But yeah, that's how I would define it. And I think if you just keep listening to the podcast, you'll sort of start to see what the shape of the anthropological cloud is, even if you'll never actually be able to pin it down. <laughs> That's a really great way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think maybe we can talk a little bit more about uh, what we're aiming to do with this podcast. And, you know, apologies for not talking more about, you know, your favorite group. <laughs> we will get to those things, I promise. <laughs> But I think it's just important to sort of lay the groundwork and say, this is what we're aiming to do. So don't 
write us and expect, you know, <laughs> to hear something that you're not. Um, we don't want to kind of do a bait and switch. So um, I think maybe we could talk a little bit more about what we're trying to do. And I would say the first thing with our mission is, I've said earlier, we're trying to fill a sort of niche that is sort of the K-pop or K-pop culture journalistic equivalent of a Harper's or a New Yorker's. And if you've ever looked at those magazines or looked at them online, you'll notice that they're the kind of journalism that doesn't always cover the latest news. Uh, It obviously looks at some issues that are relevant to present events, uh, but often they won't be something that is immediately on trend. Um, so that's one kind of aspect and why we're sort of using that as a, as a kind of journalistic analogy, because we want to think about specific things and not be tied to a K-pop news cycle. I think if you follow any other K-pop outlets, you'll notice that it's very much dictated by the news cycle, by the rapid rate of releases mm-hmm. of the K-pop industry. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do here is not necessarily track every single movement of that or speak to every single flash of news Mm -hmm. that comes up, but really just focus on one or two things and go in depth with them. So that's the other sort of journalistic analogy is it's a long form piece, right? That's the other thing that we were looking for was a more sort of long form journalism rather than shorter articles and that kind of thing. And so when I initially wrote about VIX, for example, for me, I was really working on a sort of long-form journalism piece, and that was the tone that I was going for. And there really isn't that much of that out there at this point. And so even though we would love to continue to write about those things, I think as far as our own personal time and output, a podcast format really spoke to that, um, but in a way that was a little bit easier to produce time-wise. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of in terms of coverage where we were going with with the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, maybe Kay, you can talk a little bit more about some of the other principles that are guiding what we're doing. Sure. One of the things that that we'll both be thinking about and working on is the ways that theory can inform our thinking. And a great way to work with theory is to talk through it with someone else um, and to apply it to something that is really fun for you, which is not to say that our like our main work isn't fun, like it <laughs> definitely is. Um, but there's something about the the joy of K-pop not having any professional obligations tied to it that allows us to engage theory in a different way um, and have maybe more fun or more joy kind of associated <laughs> with that um, because of our our different relationship with it. Um. I think one of the other notes we had here was standing talent. So maybe you want to talk a little bit sure. more about that too. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that the field of K-pop is so vast and there's so much happening at any given time. And for many people, I, there are a lot of different motivations for engaging with K-pop and they're all valid and good. And as any anthropologist would say, like your experience is your experience. Um, and so for us, we find ourselves more drawn to the some of the like the virtuosic qualities of the performers. And I think for both of us, we're really interested in like what do we think constitutes high quality 
performance. And we're sort of less interested in the aesthetic aspects. Is that like a good way of putting it? I don't know. Which is not to say that we're not interested in aesthetics at all. Right, right. the, The main like focus of our analysis is not so much on like individual, I don't know how to put it. Like cult of personality, maybe? Yeah. Because I think, like, one of the things that I definitely get into, and this is just me as a, and my approach to kind of pop culture and music more generally, is thinking not only about, yes, the performative aspects of it, right, and the Mm -hmm. quote-unquote face of the music, Mm -hmm. but it's also the fact that it's more than just the performers, it's a whole apparatus of people working to create that piece, right? Working to create Mm -hmm. either the music or the music video or whatever other kinds of output. I mean, even variety shows, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, um, that have their own kind of scripted content and their own arrangement or their own premise and that that show went into development, right? It's, It's thinking about all of the bits and pieces that go into it that aren't simply about the, the performer or, again, the cult mm-hmm. of personality, mm-hmm. right? And I, at the same time, though, like, there's a distinction for me between, like, I hope that we have a chance to talk about, like, Jackson, for example. Mm-hmm. Jackson mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wong and, and his, like, agency and how he advocates for certain things on variety shows and how he represents a certain kind of, like, Asian identity. Like, that's you know about his personality but it's not like oh Jackson he's so hot like there's not going to be a whole lot of that at the same time <laughs> I think we can both be honest that like we do have biases oh we'll yeah talk about that too absolutely but like our discussion is not is not going to be just based on like who we find attractive or stuff like that right well I mean I think that's the thing is that which is not to say that you don't, <laughs> like, find some people attractive. It is that feeling where, um, yeah, you aren't just kind of standing there, like, gushing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not like the kind of fan engagement where you sort of are mindlessly consuming the the product, right? right? It's that you understand it's a product at the same time that you have all the feels yes, at the same exactly. time. So understanding that those phenomena aren't in isolation, that they're all kind of happening at the same time. And I think what we're trying to do is have a conversation about those kinds of multiple um, multiple sentiments that are at play when you really love something. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you deal with that? And how do you work with that? And how do you live with that? Mm-hmm. And I think those are kind of the crucial elements that we're really thinking through and talking about um, in the conversations that we're going to have both today and in the future. Yeah. And I think, you know, to go along with that, what you were saying earlier about like not following the trends, we might not be always talking about like the groups that are the most popular, or the groups that are the trendiest. Um, I think that both of us are probably more interested in like what is a group doing that's either like changing the landscape or trying to like be different in some way or set itself apart from what else is going on 
So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, for example, if it's a big group, how are we highlighting something that isn't already part of the conversation mm-hmm. about why people yeah. like that group? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really what we're trying to do as well. Again, just sort of filling the niches that we've always wanted and creating that for ourselves, you know, which again is its own sort of love affair endeavor. It's like you're just I was in a I was in a hip hop group. So this is going to my own background and my own connection with music more broadly. And no, I was not the MC, so I really wasn't that cool. Uh, I was the nerdy flute player in a hip hop group in South cool. Africa. <laughs> but we had a song because we did all original songs mostly and uh, our MC, Moff, they, he had a line and it was a song, it was like, do it for the love and that's just enough. Do it for the love and that's just enough. And I think that's also why we're here too, is that, you know, you, you really are just doing it, doing it for the love, but you know, there's different ways of loving, right? Um, and when it comes to how we love K-pop, like no one was expressing the love the way that we're expressing the love, and I think that's we also love, we love with our brains. <laughs> we do, we do. Um, so yeah, I think that was the other sort of animating force behind it too, is that we wanted to express our love for all the kinds of stuff that's coming out of Korean popular culture and doing it in a way that felt like the love that we wanted to give to that um, that wasn't out there already. So, yeah. Um, but maybe we should just kind of end by talking a little bit about what our limitations are aside from kind of the coverage and what we're going to talk about, but also who we are as people and what sorts of limitations that puts on the kinds of you know, analysis or the kinds of conversations mm-hmm. that we can have here. Yeah. Well, speaking for myself, <laughs> um, I am not a Korean speaker. I'm not Korean. I've never been to Korea. Um, and so that's like a pretty significant, significant set of limitations. That said, um, I you know, as any responsible researcher would do, I try to learn as much as I can from as many different sources as I can. So I read academic journals and people who are who are writing about Korea in an academic way um, and also try to, you know, keep up with um, K-pop news and analysis online um, and to follow people who are, like, at the source of what's happening and who can speak with some kind of, whether it's identity or other kind of authority on what's going on. Mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I have similar limitations in terms of language ability, um, you know, and I think respectively, we both have kind of dipped our foot in the pool of learning the Korean language yeah. to a certain extent um, in varying ways. I mean, I've just done sort of a shoddy online course, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I think you took actual classes, right, Kay? Well, so I did like tutorials with Korean students and like I have, like I taught myself well from a book, um, Hangul, and like have done enough that, you know, I can understand like 
basics in a drama, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. not like the really you know complicated company boardroom stuff. Right, so, right. Yeah, so I might be like a second year level like college Korean or something like. Wow, that. that's a heck of a lot better than <laughs> I can claim from my online online library course. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely suffer from a very similar linguistic limitation, unfortunately, because of our day jobs. And this is where like K-pop continues to be a secret love affair is we've had to focus our language learning on where we do our field work. So for me, um, you know, I do work in South Africa and um, I ended up learning Afrikaans, which is one of the local languages. South Africa has 11 official languages, so it's pretty hard to learn all of them. But um, because I previously also spent some time in the Netherlands and learned Dutch, Dutch is very similar to Afrikaans. And so the transition in terms of language learning there was really um, an obvious choice in relation to where I was doing my research. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for UK, Yes. <laughs> so in college, I studied Nigeria's three major languages, Hausa, Yoruba, and Igbo. Um, I'm currently studying Yoruba again in preparation for my field work. Um, and then also through Nollywood movies, I learned Pidgin English. Um, and then I've also like taken French and I've studied Korean. So um, I, I enjoy learning languages and just haven't had the chance to learn Korean as as well as I would like to, but it's Mm -hmm. an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. But I think even despite all of that, the fact that we both, I think, have training in linguistic anthropology, Mm -hmm. have studied multiple languages, we understand the politics of language. Mm -hmm. And so even though we know that limitation, that we're not fluent in Korean, um, that that's always going to be part of how we talk about it, Mm -hmm. right? That's Mm -hmm. always going to inform whether or not we can make an analytic leap about something or not, right? right? Right. So as far as that goes, um, you know, I think that's something that we both are in a good position to talk about in terms of maybe not the specific language itself, but how language works Mm -hmm. or what language does. I think we have training that enables us to understand those phenomena more broadly and we can address it at least on that plane. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's also something that we might talk about in the future as well, are kinds of language politics at play in music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just sort of our own backgrounds in music as well are part of what we're bringing to the table too. Um, you know, first of all, being a musician from time to time, again, not not the, the day job, but the magical side piece that brings you a lot of other wonderful things in your life. You know, I grew up learning music and I've played the flute for, you know, most of my life now, I think. Um, And so, yeah, I have like classical training in that. And then just growing up with a father who also has a secret love affair with music, um, who teaches music, he teaches the ukulele. Um, And he's the one who really raised me to have a love for music that went beyond just sort of whatever your knee-jerk reaction is to the music or how it makes you feel, but thinking about the studio musicians, thinking about who wrote the piece, and thinking about how it fits with other music. You know, he was the guy who was always telling me, oh, that chord progression is the same as this chord progression in that song. And just being raised with all that stuff, but then, yeah, also, even though my research is on medical things or global health, that 
anthropological training more broadly kind of gives you a sensibility in terms of thinking about cultural production that's really useful and powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also have some of that classical training, although I never really accomplished much with it, but I was trained in piano and um, played violin and orchestra through high school. Um, and I think for me, music, especially in like a like a folk music sense, I don't know if I want to say folk music, but um, music has been sort of a family heritage kind of thing. And mm-hmm. especially like my dad's side of the family are all church musicians. And um, so th- I think for me, I grew up seeing the ways that music is really meaningful to people and is a really important part of people's relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. that's definitely something that I attend to still. Yeah. And I guess to wrap up, mm-hmm. I think the last thing we should talk about in terms of, um, I guess, limit limitations or things that sort of affect what we're going to talk about um, is, you know, one of the key principles of anthropology is, is self-reflexivity, which mm-hmm. is owning what your own position is, thinking about how your social position affects the way you see things, the knowledge you're producing, and your interactions with the people you're working with when you um, do field work and when you're mm-hmm. studying something that that your kind of personality, where you come from, what you love, what you're interested in, what you focus on is always affected by those things. And as a kind of self-reflexive turn, uh, we thought it was really important to talk about who our ultimate bias groups are because that definitely affects how we talk about things, what sorts of examples we're gonna draw from the most. Um, And we've just found this from when we talk about K-pop more generally that the examples we always use are the bias groups because they're just so much a part of how we've come to love K-pop more broadly, especially for me, I think. Um, Just, I've I've mentioned it earlier, so probably everyone can figure out, but VIX is my ultimate bias group for many, many reasons, which I'm sure we'll continue to talk about. But I definitely want to own that because it's going to affect how I talk about things and what sorts of examples I'm going to bring up. And it's not, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to show love for other groups, but I definitely think that um, being VIX biased definitely affects what examples I'm going to talk about. I'm probably going to talk about VIX a lot more. So if you do not like VIX, if you're an anti-fan, you should probably turn off this podcast (laughs) right about now. (laughs) If you're willing to have an open dialogue or hear different opinions, um, please continue listening. But yeah, if you don't want to hear someone going on ad nauseum about the virtues of Ken's vocals... (laughs) We're going to be talking a lot about that. Yes. In conjunction in conjunction with my bias group, and this is why it works out so well, my bias group is B1A4, and um, we are both of us huge fans of the friendship between Ken and Sandal, and I expect that we will be talking about that quite a lot and probably some moments where we'll just be in awe of both of their vocal talents. Um that being said, there are a lot of other groups that I, um, whose work I enjoy talking about a lot from um, BAP, BTS, um, and I think, you know, everybody's secret fave, Shiny, will be talking about them as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I would absolutely love to focus on, because I think we have to give the girls their shine, too, yes. um, 
you know, I think it's pretty obvious or it will become obvious that we're both fans of groups like FX. I like hidden girl groups Mm. that aren't getting enough attention because they don't fit the sort of popular mold. So Mm. groups like Purfles, which have only had a couple of releases, but I will continue to vocalize my love of of them. Um, I think Mamamoo is less of a secret, but we both really Mm -hmm. adore Mamamoo a lot. yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a variety of sort of hidden gems out there that we'd also really love to highlight. And I think, you know, other genres, I think we can talk about kind of the synergy in terms of like what sorts of dramas we love as well. But I think recognizing who we love and how that's affecting the conversation is something that we'll continue to do throughout. Connect with us on Twitter at Second Lead, that's 2ND Lead, or email us at Second Lead Syndrome, 2ND Lead Syndrome at gmail.com. You can find additional content and links to full audio and video mentioned on Second Lead Syndrome at secondleadsyndrome.wordpress.com. Our theme was composed by Kevin Vitz Wong. You can hear more of his music at soundcloud.com slash prosthetica. Additional music for this episode by Stereotypes. On the next episode of Second Lead Syndrome. Um, And so again, when people claim to like a group and it's just a matter of personal opinion, Bourdieu would probably push back on that statement and say, look, your personal opinion is indeed partly something that is wrought of, you know, your own individual agency. But at the same time, you're occupying a particular social position or your habitual sort of training to like what you like is also a function of whatever social structures you're kind of caught up in. Um.